Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of False Bottom Girls. I am Jen, and that is Rachel. Hello, I'm Rachel. Rachel. Hey, Jen. Hello, How's Rachel. Going? You know. <laughs> You know, Rachel, as soon as we're born, we're dying, right? And we'll just kick off this episode in yeah. um, that really dark way because beer's the same way. I was just going to say, just like a beer. Just like a beer. We're all. Except we're all I wouldn't want like anyone beer. to consume, consume me fresh like I would a beer. Not me. Okay, fair. I don't, I don't want anyone to eat me. I just, I just want them to okay. let me die. And then eat you. Of old age. And oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> unlike a beer oh i got it i got it sure everyone else got has it so don't worry about it (laughs) um this is just like a real weird note to start this episode i was gonna say is that how you started your presentation i did yes yeah (laughs) i did i was like like as soon as we're born we start dying (laughs) and was like hello Jen, Jen gave a presentation a couple days ago for the Master Brewers Association, and that's how she started it. Yeah, just like that. She was like, "Hello, room full of people. Welcome to the end of your life." Yeah, you are simultaneously the youngest and oldest you've ever been in your life right now. What? Mind blown. See, I. This is what I do with presentations. I blow minds. Yeah. So. Get this part out. Segwaying, yeah. <laughs> um, no, this this part can stay in. It's fine. Everybody can contemplate their place <laughs> in this portal coil. So yes, Rachel is correct. Two days ago, well, not by the time you've heard this, but I did this presentation for my District Georgia MBAA uh, chapter, and I have been trying to do this presentation. This is like the third time. So third time's a charm with doing this presentation. Um, the first time was actually when I worked for Orpheus Brewing. I know we don't like to talk about them that much because they suck, but. And non-existent. Uh, Rachel, and non-existent because yeah, they suck. Not but even there anymore. Rachel, have you ever been, and I know we've talked about this on, I mentioned this on the podcast before that I was very abruptly and surprisingly laid off from Orpheus three months after I'd been hired. Have you ever been laid off from a job? Like just unexpectedly laid off? No. Okay. So I was working on this presentation because when I was there, I was in charge of beer quality and education. And one of the big things, one of the big challenges when I started was that they didn't really have a good idea of how their beer aged on shelves. And as setting up the sensory program, that was one of my top priorities was, okay, let's figure out how our beer ages so we can develop, you know, in-house training on evaluating our beers. And so that we can communicate that with the distributor and mm-hmm. retailers and, you know, our salespeople can check it and everything like that. Yeah. Um, makes and sense. I've, yeah. And I've learned since then, and particularly after this, uh, 
presentation that I just done that 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 is a big deal for a lot. Of oh, yeah. Breweries, we right? did it at a uh, left hand. Yeah, that was very much part of the it, it was like weekly century was you went during on this day between this hour, everyone went and tried. It was very much like that one month, three months, five months, six months, because it's like you said, very, very important, especially right. the bigger you are. In my yes. Opinion. Yes. And right now, also with craft beer slowing down in terms of growth and sales, your product may be on the shelf for a lot longer than you anticipated. So it is important to know that. So I had been, you know, gathering samples and I had gotten this presentation, had gotten started on it of, okay, here's, you know, here's how beer ages. Here's this program. Here are all these things we're going to taste. And was working on that when the CEO called to be like, hey, we have to lay off 30% of the staff, and that includes you. And that, like I said, middle of my workday, middle of working on this presentation, and like the first, you know, like the shock, obviously, wore off. But for anybody who's ever been like laid off or fired in the middle of your workday, it's really fucking weird because like I've got this PowerPoint open on my laptop that I'm like, so do I finish this <laughs> or like, <laughs> what am I doing for the rest of my day now? You like, leave. You just suddenly not have a job. <laughs> well, I was at home. Oh, but, like, yeah. You just well, all of a sudden do not have a job anymore. Yeah. And it's like, but I really want to work on this PowerPoint, which people <laughs> who listen to the uh, podcast know that I love PowerPoints. Yeah. Well, and I love okay. making PowerPoints, right? Yeah. So then I was like, okay, my next plan is I will submit this as a proposal for HomebrewCon, which I submitted for this year as a workshop, and it immediately got rejected. Like, what? Like, hurt feelings territory. I don't think I knew this. <laughs> yeah, which I, so I, and this, obviously I have a lot of uh, criticisms of the Brewers Association and the American Home Brewers Association. This is not that, um, but I knew that they wanted to do more workshops. So I was like, well, this would be a great workshop to do, yeah. particularly because as a beer judge, one of the flavors that I learned to start being able to identify really well was when people were using stale malt in their beers. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot with home brewers. And we'll talk about this in a little bit where, especially with like specialty malts, when you have very small quantities that you're using. So that makes that might sit around a little bit longer as you're just using, you know, 10% of your grain bill would be like a mm -hmm. specialty malt. And so I submitted it there. And like within the like the proposal window closed, and by the end of that week, they were like, "No." <laughs> Which again, I understand why. I remember you telling me about this, and I remember you saying they wanted more workshops. Right, right. So Did they changed their mind. No. It, oh, okay. No, but the workshops they they only ended up doing two workshops, and one was like beginning homebrewers and okay. one was advanced homebrewers. So that was just in my mind. I was like, okay, this would be a good workshop, and then I understand that when you have a conference, you have a finite amount of time. No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So finally, when I was talking with our MBAA district president, I was like, listen, <laughs> have I got a presentation for you? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yes, and they agreed. So I was finally able to do 
this Yay. presentation. <laughs> yeah. All full circle. Yes, exactly. And it was it, it was everything that I thought it would be and more. Um, obviously, one of the big things that we're missing by recording this is all of the hands-on components that I had sure. for the demonstration or for the uh, for the session. And I had a ton. I had yeah, yeah, malt steeps. I had hop grinds. I had food samples. I had off flavors. I had commercial examples. It was a buffet of sensory. That's amazing. But we can still talk about all of all of the uh, principles because it is like we we were just talking about. It is important as brewers to be able to know how your beer ages, in particular, how your customer experiences your beer. Mm-hmm. And it's important as you know, sensory people, as developing our palates, that we learn how to identify what these flavors are. So when we're talking about the like the shelf life of beer, you know, we don't have to worry about whether beer is fit for consumption usually, right? Because it's, and when we're talking about this specifically, we're talking about alcoholic beer versus non-alcoholic beer, which has its own, which does, there is concern there for pathogens, Mm -hmm. Uh, but for alcoholic beer, beer is naturally protective from a lot of spoilage. So what we're talking about is, you know, our beer is not going to go bad. Like it's not going to get moldy. Yeah. And that's a common question I'll get like, or something I find myself clarifying a lot at the brewery is like, oh, it's like if people are like, well, I'm like, when I talk about aging and talk about getting old uh, and I'm always like, but it's never going to hurt you. Don't think about it like that. Right. It's just not going to taste very good. Exactly. Eventually at some point. Right. So just to clarify, you are safe. Yes. So what we're talking about is how the beer sensory qualities change over time to impact its shelf life. And so what we're doing when we're trying to figure out what the shelf life is, is to determine how long the beer remains close enough to its, to whatever the brand profile is. And as a brewery, you're the one who's deciding what your brand profile is. Uh, so most beers, you know, in like in a perfect world, and we've talked about this a lot too, uh, when we're talking about things like foam, is with beer with shelf shelf life, you have to balance what's realistic against what you would like in a perfect world. And like you give up some things, like maybe your beer is going to age faster because you don't have cold storage, right? But that's like, that's a decision that you make. Mm-hmm. So we want to like balance that, balance the ideal versus reality, because that's another thing that Um, I've heard people say is if you've got, you know, the the first thing that comes to mind for me is the stone enjoy by beers. Mm. Like that's bad idea. That could, yeah, right. That can be a gamble because if it says enjoy by July 4th and I go into the store and see a beer called enjoy by July 4th. And and, it's July 5th. Yeah. And well, and like when we're recording this right now, it's almost August. Yeah. So I would definitely not buy it. Definitely right, I'm not, not going it. to buy an Oktoberfest that's on the shelf in March or April. The mm-hmm. same way I'm not going to buy a wet hot beer that's on the shelf in like May. You know, it's like that's the beer's going to be old. It's not going to mm-hmm. taste very well. But you do, and I know that we've talked about this. You said the same thing with 
changing the name of your pub ale from mm -hmm. calling it an extra special bitter because people saw bitter and were like, oh, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. So the, the mind is a powerful tool. Right. Right. And people, you know, you have limited contact time with your customers mm -hmm. and you're not, you're not going to be in the grocery store with every customer who sees your beer to be like, I don't know. It, it's, it's not bitter. Beer yeah. style. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, in a perfect world, we're drinking beer while it's young. We're keeping it cold throughout its, its lifetime. And we've found ways to keep oxygen out of beer. And like, those are all three, like, hey, if you can do this, your beer is going to stay good for a lot longer. It's still going to age. And realistically, if particularly like in Georgia, we don't have self-distribution. So you have to go through a distributor. So you're giving up a large degree of control over your product and mm -hmm. maybe it's sitting in a hot warehouse for a long time. Maybe it's, you know, it's been riding around in the back of a non-refrigerated mm -hmm. truck all day, all getting, afternoon. Getting thrown around kind of, you know, right. exactly. imagine like a airport, you're checking your luggage, you do all these things to make, to secure it, you know? <laughs> right. It's kind of like that with the beer. You're like, okay, uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Although as a brief side note, I've, I've traveled twice in the past two weeks for exams and both times I've had to bring my own pictures with me, which is not necessarily a problem, except that my pictures end up breaking oh. almost every time. But I don't <laughs> notice that until I have poured beer into the yeah. picture and see beer coming out of oh. cracks. And because it usually will crack like right along the seam. Oh. So you really can't see it. Uh, and that happened to me um, when I was in Baltimore, like I poured one of the exam beers in the pitcher and it just immediately started seeping out. So I was like, shit, 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 and just started like pouring it really quickly. <laughs> but that happens anyway, that ha the, that my pitchers, RIP to my pitchers every time I like, I should just buy stock in, in plastic 60 ounce pitchers because I have to re I have to buy them so many times. Uh, well, I'll bring them up to Richmond for you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so anyway, when we're talking about our shelf life, determining that shelf life, right, we have those ideal conditions that we know that we're probably not going to get. So what we can do instead is start, figure out the shelf life of our beer by starting with our rejection threshold and working backwards. And I th think we've talked about thresholds a little bit on here before, but, uh, you know, when we're talking about a sensory threshold, that's going to be the level of strength that a stimulus will be before you either detect it or you can reject it. And rejection thresholds in particular are compound and context specific. And that's important. And we have talked about this before when we talk about like off flavors is let's say you have um, your pub ale has acetic acid in it, that's not appropriate, but your Flanders red ale has acetic acid, that is appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be, it would be inappropriate if it weren't there. Yeah. So the rejection thresholds are- Style you know, dependent. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, I know the example that Dr. Simpson gives is if you picture- if you go to a clown convention and you see a clown, that's appropriate. If you go to like your grandmother's funeral <laughs> and dresses up as a clown, that's probably inappropriate, right? Yeah. Like that same outfit 
isn't really going to track in both yeah. places. So that's kind of what your rejection threshold is. I love it's that like, example. Uh, yeah, right. And like, at what point <laughs> is it inappropriate? And Bill Simpson is the ultimate in analogies. Oh yes, like they're it is just very so inter- good. entertaining. Right. So there's our establishing a rejection threshold is kind of a threefold thing. The first thing you have to do is establish what your brand standard is. Uh, So that's when you are building your descriptive profile of your beer. This is when you're particularly when if you've got uh, if you're starting your sensory panel or if you've got a new core beer or something this you're going to create a consensus profile with your sensory panel on this is what the beer should taste like. Yes. And from that, you develop your true to target profiles. So when you're evaluating the beer, just like you said, you would do it at left hand. You've got this, is this beer true to target or is it not? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a binary. So if it's not, why is it not? And it's, it is a, it's a binary, but it's nuanced where yes, you know, exactly. it's, it's probably like day 99. Is it really going to taste that different from day 100? No, but like at 105. Yeah. Maybe that's when it's just like, okay, no, this is. Yeah. And it's important to do like, especially when you're establishing best buy dates on your beer, because it, your beers, are, they are different. Styles are different and styles age differently. And if you can mimic, and that was the, one of the things they did too, is try to mimic what the beer would actually be doing in the market, like sitting mm-hmm. in dry storage, sitting in some, in some in cold storage, some in dry storage. Right. And you're right because it's, it's a big, part about what the consumer expects also which I know you're going to get to mm-hmm. but so I'm gonna let you carry on oh well thank you sorry I just no. want to no, 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 you're exactly much. right yeah but that's <laughs> once you have that true to target and your brand description that's when you can start with your flavor rejection threshold but you mm-hmm. need to everybody needs to be on the same page about what the beer should taste like and then you can start with your rejection threshold and work backwards. And when you're establishing your rejection threshold, you want to prioritize your flavor rejection threshold first, because that deviation from the expected flavor is what's going to make consumers not want your beer, right? Like it could be maybe the color's not what they're used to, you know, but like if it tastes the way they think it's going to taste. Yeah. And I think it's super important to like I know you've already said, but the uh, the difference between the freshest beer that you could try as a brewer versus the aged beer in the market. Like I heard something the other day or read it. I don't know where it was, but I thought it was really interesting. Like most of the food products in the grocery store that are kind of like prepackaged items or like maybe the taco kit for the taco you know, nights or stuff like that are probably already like a year to year and a half old by the time they're even getting to the grocery store, mm-hmm. which I am a person, I am not a cook and I buy a lot of that stuff. And I was just <laughs> like, Oh, like it kind of grossed me <laughs> out, but it's, it's true. This isn't, and their beer is not like that. Like beer is for the most part, it's coming from, you know, even, even your left-hand beer coming to Charlotte is still getting here within like probably a month to the right. hand of the consumer. I would imagine. Right six right. weeks, but that's, yes. a, that's a, something you have to prepare for. And your beer is going to taste different in six weeks than it will to the people getting the beer in the market in Colorado, which is right. how do you, how do you handle that too? Do you start right. at that point? Do you have sensory panels for people in 
the East Coast versus Colorado, you know, I mean, how do you like a whole bunch of uh, another level of sensory that to me, I guess I'm just now thinking about and I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that as business owner. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that that is completely true. And that's something that uh, one of the panels that I did for this session was getting four different ages of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and giving them to everyone as a blind panel and saying, okay, rearrange or arrange these from freshest to oldest. And one of the things that somebody said was that they put the beer that was five months old as the freshest because they said this tastes like what I expect Sierra Nevada Pale Ale to taste like. So that is really important to keep in mind is when are your customers getting this? Because they're going to prefer what they're used to, mm-hmm. right? The same way that you can, you know, like the having skunkiness in a clear bottle of Corona is part of the experience, right? Yep. Like customers expect that even if it is a flaw now as part of the experience. So it is really important to keep that in mind. And that was something with Orpheus that we talked about a lot because we, you know, we could get low fills, we could get a free case of beer a week. And like, of course they were tasting the beer right before they packaged it, but that's when it's the extra freshest. Mm -hmm. And then nobody's really tasting the beer after Mm -hmm. that, you know, like if it's on tap, then yeah. But, but that's, you know, if it's out in the market and again, particularly if you kind of lack that control over your distribution, or if you have a really large distribution footprint, it can be hard to manage that. So it's important to know what the kind of, yeah, like the average age yep. of your beers are that your customers are drinking. And generally speaking with draft beer, if it's not pasteurized, which most craft beer is not going to be pasteurized, True. that can remain fresh for about 45 to 60 days. If it's pasteurized, it can remain fresh for about 90 to hundred days if you're packaging it, uh, so bottles, cans, if it's kept refrigerated, that can remain fresh for up to six months, um, but maybe noticeably off after three months, particularly if it's not refrigerated or if it's subjected to other stresses. It sits in the hot warehouse. It mm-hmm. gets thrown around, you know, and I, I know I've seen the videos of like the distributors who just like literally like throw cakes out of let them like drop off the truck yeah exactly <laughs> just like fall on the ground roll around right yeah, right but like some you know so we want to prioritize what that flavor rejection threshold is but also with appearance over time the beer is going to become very clear as more particulate settles out of suspension but if autolysis has occurred then you, there may be some haze mm-hmm. it, but that would be accompanied accompanied by autolyzed flavors. And we'll talk about that in a little bit that with beer, it's not just one thing, right? Like it's not, it's not just going to be papery. There's going to be other indicators of age and the color will also darken with time as well. So when we're talking about like how to minimize that flavor change, we want to like our in-house rejection threshold is important, but it's also really important to start with your customer education and then work backwards. So if like if you're packaging, it's important that you have, you know, a best before or born on package date. Again, pragmatically, it's I understand why a brewery wouldn't want to put 
drink by this date on there because if I'm shopping for beer and it's after that date, then I'm not buying that beer. I'll buy yeah. a different beer. So I understand, you know, why some breweries just might put like packaged on yeah, or, or something like that. Like I get it. And that's what we um, do. Yeah. But also particularly because I can give you an estimate, but I can't conduct enough research on each type of beer or style that I have to really know a best buy date, me right. as a brewery personally. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and you know, also telling the customer like how to store the beer, how to serve the beer. And that I like, and I made this distinction during my presentation when we're talking about how to store the beer. This is to minimize flavor change, not you need to keep the beer cold so it doesn't explode. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like tell people to keep the beer cold yeah. because that it keeps it fresh. Okay. Yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're, yeah. You're putting this on your cans. Yeah, that's right. not okay. You are, right. you are wrong, sir. You are doing the wrong thing. Right. Exactly. Stop. So yes, that's, that's why I, I put that caveat on there. It's yeah. like, Yes, you should store the beer cold so it ages slower, not so it's not a not safety so it's issue. safer as a right. physical <laughs> arm towards you. Right. And then, you know, if you can work with your distributor, work with retailers, work with your salespeople on ensuring that like stock is properly rotated. And I know I've worked with salespeople before that if I was out in you know like a little bottle shop in the suburbs where i live and i saw one of her beers that i was like okay this beer is eight months old mm. and it's an ipa so mm. it doesn't need to be on the shelf like i would let the sales associate or the sales associate the sales rep know like hey this place has this really really old beer and then they would either reach out to the distributor or they would just go and get that beer and like buy it back so it wasn't on the shelf anymore so as much as you can working with your off-premises people yeah. to make sure that you've got fresh beer. And like some general flavor shifts that we'll find with aging beer, like for malt, this is going to be like flavor shifts to like honey, caramel, toffee, dark fruit, which is really difficult to explain because you can also buy malt specifically for those flavors. So, you know, learning to tell the difference between mm -hmm you know, this is honey because the beer's old or this is honey because it has honey malt in it mm -hmm. is something that just comes with experience the same way. Like, you know, when I first started out and Rachel, I'm sure you were the same way. Like I could smell a beer and be like, okay, this has, um, I don't know, a pear aroma or a peach aroma. And as I got more experience, it was like, okay, this is hop aroma. This is yeah. a, an ester. Like you just learn yeah. over time. And again, with aged beers, you're, there's not going to be only one indicator, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to only taste like it's honey where you're like, hi, huh, I wonder if this is honey malt or if the beer's old, like there's going to be other things there. And other things that you might get are your hop flavors and aromas are going to diminish. Your perceived bitterness is going to de decrease. And I, I know I've read in places before where it will say like the sweetness increases, but the it's not clear whether the sweetness actually increases or if it's more just that the malt or the hops decrease, the bitterness mm -hmm. decreases. So your perception just shifts. Yeah. And then with yeast you know you can get autolysis flavors you can get more captain which is an autolysis uh flavor 
And if the beer is old, you know, you can get acetaldehyde in older beers as well, because as ethanol, you know, acetaldehyde is a penultimate step before ethanol production. And then when ethanol starts to break down, it oxidizes back into acetaldehyde. So if you have a beer that's old and has acetaldehyde in it, or if you have a beer that you think might be aged and you're picking up acetaldehyde, it's possible that that could be from age. Mm-hmm. And my favorite is if you're hungover and yep. you're most likely probably burping out and breathing out and smelling yourself acetaldehyde. acetaldehyde. Yep. <laughs> so if you need a sensory lesson, just go get <laughs> smashed. Yeah. Wait for the next day to come. Or just kidding. Don't like I'll get really hungover <laughs> and then just breathe in your face. <laughs> like maybe that will help you with acetaldehyde. Oh, gross. <laughs> threshold training. <laughs> Butyric. There we go. Like we've got this. Oh, whole... we've got them all. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just like wear really sweaty, gross socks too. We could just throw in yeah, acetaldehyde. <laughs> we got it. We got it, baby. Uh, yeah. So the one thing that I did for the presentation, one of the, the hands-on components was everyone got samples of honey, sherry, brie, and marmite. And that was to nice. kind of calibrate for honey when we're talking about malt flavor shifting with, you know, sherry is also a malt flavor shift as well as like a barrel aged character. Yeah. And I'm not a sherry drinker, like I'm not Fraser Crane, but I remember the first time I tried sherry as a, like, okay, I keep reading that like beer, old beer can have sherry notes. I tasted it and was like, oh, this tastes like barrel aged beer. And then I was like, no barrel-aged beer tastes like sherry so you know that that's another one like you may due not to see. oxidation right yes right you may not see or taste sherry that often but it's you know that's something that's that's like pretty widely available to be able to taste it and be like oh okay this is this is an aged note in beer and then the brie is good for mercaptan and the marmite is autolyzed yeast so mm -hmm. that's, you know, that gives you that yeast bite. I don't know if you've ever had Marmite. I don't think I Actually, have. I bought Marmite. I know you when have. We were yeah. in London. Yeah, like, you Tipsy did. in London at the grocery store and <laughs> buying buying all of the paprika chips they had. <sighs> um, and then also getting Marmite. Um, Marmite is not that. good. Um, no, I know. But, I'm at the chips. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, but it is a good example of like, okay, this is yeast autolysis. And I like to include things like that because we've talked about this too, of like how expensive it can be when you're studying for a Cicerone exam or if you're setting up a sensory panel and like you should absolutely do flavor standard training, you know, with like with the Aroxa standards. If you but can, you can also, sure. right, but you can yeah. also taste honey, you know, smell spices, all, all of those things. Um, so it's good you know, uh, having those food components, I always like to include stuff like that because it is like, okay, you can go to the grocery store and buy this and you can give this to your employees as well or whoever you're training on censoring. When we're talking about like the different flavors that can come from ingredients, the first one obviously is malt. And as a former person who worked in craft malt, I'm very sensitive about people wanting to blame the maltster. And with aged flavors in beer, a lot of times the maltster gets blamed for that. But the where we encounter it most is that fatty acid oxidation. So 
Unsaturated fatty acids originate in barley. The most important of those is linoleic acid. And during germination, this enzyme lipoxygenase called LOX, L-O-X, forms and it oxidizes that linoleic acid. So the more your malt is modified, the more LOX will develop, but it's also, it's similar to uh, the DMS precursor SMM, the S-methylmethionine, is that it is very heat sensitive. So the more, like the higher kilned the malt is, the more that LOX gets degraded. Polyphenols and Maillard reactions can also, or may also inhibit LOX. And like the fatty acid oxidation, so you can get this LOX that's going to form during germination. There's also LOX-free barley that you can, uh, I didn't realize it was as available as it was, but we had a representative from Prairie Malt at the session who said that they have LOXless malt that they uh, market for like a pretty similar price point as like hmm. their regular LOXful <laughs> malt, I guess. But even if we like you have, let's say you're using LOXless barley or LOXless malt, there are still reactive oxygen species that can be generated through that linoleic acid interaction with things like iron and copper and manganese, all of those being things that you might find like in your yeast nutrient, right? And I don't know off the top of my head what those levels are, like how much it would need to be exposed to that. But even so, even if you are using like a box free malt, you could still have these ROSs, which makes me think of the RUSs from Princess Bride, the rodents of unusual size. <laughs> have you seen the Princess Bride? Yes, of course. Okay. I was about to say, hold I don't, on. I, I may mean, need to take a break. No, no. <laughs> I've definitely <laughs> seen it. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I'm not really good with memories or remembering movie lines, <laughs> actors, like. I'm like one of those. Yeah, I've seen it once and I remember three things about it. Okay. What are the three things? Nothing. Oh, as you wish. <laughs> I, um, it was so long ago. I barely Carrie remember. Carrie used being hot as hell. I think I was like a little <laughs> missing the, the age line for that one. It's one of those Inconceivable. movies. In one of those movies that I saw a long time ago when I was young, but don't remember anything. All right. Well, we're going to have to watch that. <laughs> I'm so bad with movies. I don't see, I don't go to movies. I barely watch them at home. I'm like a, I'm a, a TV show person. I'm like a, a binge watcher on my TV shows. I'm bad. Movies end too quickly for me. I want, I want more. I don't want to be okay, so invested fair. and then it have it end so quick. I hate it. Okay. Fair enough. Like, so I'm so bad with movies. So we have these rodents of oxygen species, the ROSs. And those will react with the linoleic acid and convert that linoleic acid into a form that will react with other ROS, other reactive oxygen species. And then that will make an oxidized fatty acid as well as another linoleic, reactive linoleic acid. So it just compounds, right? It's just kind of a snowball effect. Now, is this the reaction that it is going to give off a metallic flavor? Is that? No. Okay. I was so just curious. So we will get to that. Okay. We will get to the metallic flavor. So what, what kind of uh, flavor would this give off? This is going to be trans all. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. You might've been getting there. I was just. Yes. 
making sure um, I knew. But yeah, so that's actually a good, I, I will jump really quickly to the um, trans-2-nonanol because that's, a, that's what the fatty acid oxidation is going to give us is T2N. So that's going to be that papery, wet cardboard, old books, waxy lipstick. I always think of it as 80s kid lipstick because I was a kid in the 80s and it tastes like the play lipstick that of course I ate. Um, and what's happening then is we have those oxidized that, okay, well, I didn't eat it. You've got lipstick on your no, no, I kind of know what you mean. Like, uh, listen, everybody knows what glue tastes like. Everybody knows what Play-Doh tastes like. Everybody knows what boogers taste like. Everybody knows what play lipstick tastes like. Okay. We can all just stop pretending. I am not, I'm a not a <laughs> lipstick girl and I never was. So okay, I well, fair enough. know what it smells like though. Okay. If that's helpful. fair enough. I yes. never ate it. I never got there. I missed that okay. part of childhood. Okay. Uh, well, we, we will be spending <laughs> Sorry, like I, 10 <laughs> days together in a couple of months. So we will oh. put on 80s kid lipstick and watch. Oh God, gross. Ride. I hate lipstick. It probably <laughs> like make me gag. <laughs> I'm, just, ugh, I'm getting gag reflex just thinking about it. <laughs> All right. So with uh, T2N, what's happening there is those oxidized, that oxidized linoleic fatty acid is going to bind to the proteins in our boil. And the yeast can't metabolize those oxidized fatty acids that are bound to the proteins. So it survives the fermentation. And the proteins will slowly release those oxidized fatty acids during storage of packaged beer. So those oxidized fatty acids, when they get unbound from those proteins, is trans 2 not and all. And your beer pH is going to control that rate of release. So if you have a pH of 4 or below, it's going to release T2N quickly. If you have a pH higher than 4, it's going to release it more slowly. But if it's in your beer, it's going to release. And I think I just want to point out the difference between like trans 2 and oxidation. Like we throw around the word oxidation a lot, but oxidation can result in many different compounds and trans 2 is just one of those. Right. And like, the reason feel, why, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I feel like when you're learning about beer, like in the babies, you know, it it's a freaking you spend your whole life learning about beer. But when you first start out, oxidation is thrown around so much and people associate it with solely this papery yes. compound. Right. And that and is that's, not the case. Right. And that's really important. And that was something that we talked about as well is the, and I like, and I know Cicerone does this and it is kind of, like you said, it's like the standard that you learn for yeah. oxidation, but there's a lot of ways that beer can oxidize. Yeah. And we're talking yeah. about a lot of those ways today. And if you're, and if you take that second level Cicerone test, that's exactly like, like it says like on the test trans to nano, but you can write oxidation. It's a very acceptable answer. And people are taught that it's interchangeable. So like, it's very right. easy to get that confused. Right. And one thing we learned in our, the last time we took the Aroxica, Aroxica, the last time we took <laughs> the Aroxa practical beer taster training was that the reason why trans to nonanol is so associated with oxidation is that when beer is fresh, you drink it faster. It makes you urinate more. If beer has trans 2 nonanol in it, it fills you up. Like it stays in, you know, like it, it stays it doesn't, in your system. It doesn't dehydrate you as much. Right. So you don't want to pee. 
Right. So you don't need to pee as often and you also are not drinking as fast. Exactly. And that's why so much research has gone into how to, you know, detect how to prevent, how to get rid of trans two non and all is because up until like the last 15 years or so, it was all macro brewers, it was all industrial and the aim, and this and this is not a, a judgment call, but the aim of beers like that is that you drink a lot fast and in quantity. Mm-hmm. And so if there's something that's slowing down how much people are consuming, they want to figure out how to get rid of it. So that's kind yeah. of how trans two non and all became like the star of yeah. oxidized. And flavors. we're talking like the difference of someone drinking, you know, two versus three or three versus four beers. But when you're a big company like that, that's a huge difference. Yeah. When you're selling billions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that that's right. That's what the <laughs> fatty acid oxidation will uh, result in trans to not and all. Nice. So then the next one to talk about is slack malt. So in malting slack is the name for stale malt. And that's going to contribute stale flavors to beer. So kiln-dried malts will absorb moisture from ambient air. And what that does is it's kind of like the baking soda in your refrigerator, right? Like after a while, it's going to absorb a lot of stuff and it's going to like just not be good. So the solution to that is to keep malt as cool and dry as possible during the entire storage period. So like, let's say you've got in your brew house, you know, like you keep your malt on pallets, like you keep it up off the floor. So that way there can be airflow around it. Um, You want to mill the malt as close to possible uh, as using it. So that way it's not absorbing all that ambient air. And you also want to make sure that you're tasting your malts and grains before milling. And this is something like I mentioned as a beer judge I started picking up on, okay, this has like stale roasted malt or stale caramel malt in it because you can just taste it. Even if you're not using that much of it, those flavors translate. And one thing that I did for this presentation was I actually got my one of my hot steep samples ready, which it was already stale because I never brewed the tamave. I meant to brew like six months ago. Um, so I already had stale malt, but I ground it and then put it in my garage for like two days where it's hot and it's humid and you know it's like over 100 degrees in there so then when i did the steep you could taste i did that next to fresher malt and you could taste how which one was fresher and which one wasn't nice i like that yeah yeah and it and it was it was a good exercise. And also that was another thing where I just told everybody, okay, one of these samples is more stale than the other, figure out which one it is. And I think everybody, except for maybe like one person said like, oh yeah, this one is obviously the more stale one. You just want to make sure that you're storing all of your ingredients well, and that you're tasting them because like you, you could avoid a lot just by tasting all of your ingredients before you brew. Uh, And so the next one, this is what you were asking about, Rachel, is talking about the Erbstraffe effect. So that roughly means grain astringent in German. And what happens is we have these malt constituents that oxidize during the wort production process. And what's going to happen is it's going to make that astringent flavor, but it will also create metallic flavors, or the metallic flavors will also often accompany those enhanced astringent tastes and the what the 
the difference is between the metallic that you can get from the Erbstraffa effect versus metallic from like a water or an equipment taint is that you're going to be able to smell. The beer is going to smell metallic. So if oxidation has occurred via the Erbstraffa effect, um, and that can also happen from hops, uh, but the beer will smell metallic. If you have a metallic flavor, if you, there's no orthonasal, so if you don't smell anything, but then you taste it and you get that metallic, which is what if you've done flavor training with like the metallic spike, mm -hmm. then you've got uh then you know what that tastes like and you have to, you know, like taste it first or like rub it on your skin. And that if you're getting those metallic flavors with no orthonasal aroma, that's going to be a taint from your water or from your equipment. Mm -hmm. So those are those are the differences in the metallic flavor, because that was definitely a question I had had, because when we're learning about metallic as an off flavor, we're usually learning that there's no orthonasal, you know, you rub it on your skin. So that metallic yep. interacts with the lipids, with the fats on your skin, and then you can smell it mm -hmm. or it interacts with the fats and the pH change in your mouth. And then you can taste it. But then I've also had beers where I can smell it. And it was like, this smells metallic. Yeah. And I know I've and done it, that before. Metallic <laughs> is a very distinct. Yeah. Like there, you, you, you don't really confuse metallic with other no. things. I've definitely uh, have done that to my some of my beer before the herbs draft effect, right. right? Unfortunately, um, so those are some of our malt flavors that can happen from oxidation. Then the next one we'll talk about is our hop flavors that of the aged flavors that can indicate an aged beer. So the first one we'll talk about is isovaleric acid, and this is going to be derived from breakdown of alpha acids and hops. It can also be produced by Brettanomyces, but we're not talking about Brettanomyces today. Uh, but this, you get isovaleric acid in your beer when you're using old or oxidized hops. And that is contrasted to aged hops that you use in something like a Lambic. Mm -hmm. So for our session, one thing that I did was I had samples of isovaleric hops and samples of aged hops together to be like, okay, this is isovaleric this is aged and I hadn't actually used or like interacted with aged hops before. And it, I mean, the way they acted was very intuitive, but they like doing the hop grind. Usually when you do a hop grind with like regular hops or non-aged hops, like there's a lot of oils and resin still in there. Right. So like I, I'll do the hop grind and then I have to like spray a bunch of ISO in mm -hmm. the, in my grinder to get all those hop oils cleared out with the aged hops, like they just like ground into dust, like, yeah. like that. And there was no like oil or anything like that. It's important to understand that hops will develop that isovaleric and get that cheesy flavor, but that will recede with time. And then you have aged hops. This isovaleric is going to form in raw hops, not in hopped beer, as it ages. So that's going to be damascenone, which we'll talk about in a second. But the isovaleric is going to come specifically from humulone alpha acids. And noble hops are supposed to be high in humulone and are prone to developing isovaleric. High cohumulone hops won't form as much isovaleric acid. And that intensity of isovaleric acid is going to increase as your beer pH decreases. So that's another important thing to keep in mind. And it's kind of like phenols where 
the level of isovaleric is going to stay the same, but as things around it shift, it's going to become more prominent. And Rachel, I know that I had texted you about this, but um, special thanks to my friend Jeff, who works at uh, Haas Hops. Is he's the sensory uh, head of the sensory program there? And I had emailed him to be like, "Hey, how do I make isovaleric hops?" Yeah. Uh, so he sent me like a ton of great info, but he was like, "Okay, here's how you. I think that you can do it." And what I did was I did like the normal hop grind, and then put those the ground up hops. I use citra hops because they're high in alpha acids. Uh, so I wanted to kind of like not only maximize the amount of like isovaleric cheesiness that I could get, but I also wanted to use a hop that more than likely craft brewers are more familiar with, you know, because it's like, I, I'm sure there are, there are craft brewers. I know there are craft brewers out there who are still using noble hops, but if we're talking about American craft, I know the Georgia beer scene enough to know that like more people more brewers are going to be more familiar with citra than they are with like sauce, oh for sure yeah right? yeah but i put them in the oven at like 170 degrees fahrenheit and just baked them for i think like seven eight hours and just like once an hour kind of took it out and shook it and like hours one through five my house smelled marvelous it smelled like <laughs> warm citra where it was like, oh, maybe I should always have like some hops in the oven because it smells <laughs> amazing right now. Hour six plus was like, oh, there's the butyric and the isovaleric. And then my oh. house fucking stank for like <laughs> two days afterward. It smelled like sweaty feet, oh. isovaleric, butyric acid. Oh, gross. Um, so I guess my advice would be if you want to make your house smell amazing like Citra or any hops, like just have it for like five hours because afterwards, <laughs> like walking into you, my you kitchen was like, uh, uh. <laughs> but then I was like, well, but it's already like, if it's this bad, imagine how much worse it'll be if I let it go for another two hours. Oh um, my God. But, yeah, which I did. Um, and it was bad. So it did get the point across of being able to say, okay, here's, fresh citra here's aged, yeah, like artificially <laughs> aged citra and you really could i mean it was like very isovaleric and again that's a that's a method you can use if or like in addition to getting an isovaleric spike that's how you can kind of create your own isovaleric hops at home just be forewarned that they are will make your house <laughs> smell gross uh, so with isovaleric this is going to be like sweaty socks um, it's sweaty socks because like things like togium is isovaleric acid. What a gross word to say. Right. But it's, it's true. And that's, you know, that's one of those things where we say it tastes or tastes like it smells like this. And that's because that is the exact same compound. Uh, so I guess if you want like super cheap sensory training, just get your feet real sweaty and smell them. And that's going to be isovaleric. If you do that, please do not ever tell me that you've done that. I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, our solutions for isovaleric are, you know, using the freshest hops possible, understanding that hops that are high in humulone, like noble hops, are going to be more susceptible to that. Don't uh, just cook like, your hops. Right. Don't cook your hops. <laughs> uh, you want to make sure that you're storing hops properly. So that means vacuum sealed, oxygen free, low temperatures. Like I keep my hops in the freezer. Rachel, I know that you all have a deep freeze and that's where you keep your hops. 
Uh, don't buy hops that you think might be old or improperly stored. And if you allow your if you allow your hops to age, again, that cheesy flavor will recede over time. And so you would be allowing your hops to age if you're doing something like a lambic where you're just really wanting the hops for their preservative purposes and not bittering purposes. Uh, so that's isovaleric. Then the next one we'll have is damascenone. And I actually really like the flavor of damascenone. That's one of those. Yeah, I don't mind it either. Like, yeah, it's like I don't. Well, I'm, not, for, I'm not like super jazzed when it's in a beer that I've paid money for. But as a standard, yeah. <laughs> I don't mind the flavor. <laughs> well, well, for so, you, tabasasone comes across as like tobacco, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so for, for me, it comes across like as like cranberry. Oh, yeah. That's a good so, one. But that, but I would not like it if it came across as tobacco. Right. Well, and for me specifically as an ex-smoker, it comes across as a freshly opened pack of cigarettes, which, <laughs> as you know, I won't dwell on it too long because I know how you feel about it. But, you know, with like smoking cigarettes is very ritualistic. And mm -hmm. so for me, when I smelled Damascenone, it's like, oh, yeah, like this is a fresh pack of cigarettes. I've just pulled off the cellophane and pulled out the foil. So it really takes me to a place. <laughs> but Damascenone is only derived from hops. So if you get it in your beer, it is because of the hops. And this is Damascenone forms in hopped beer as it ages. It doesn't happen in raw hops. So isovaleric comes from hops that are aged. Damascenone comes from hopped beer that is aged. And this is, Damascenone is one of those compounds that they're still not really sure on like all of the pathways to create it, but it's fairly well studied in wine. So there's some things that they're like, okay, we know it acts this way in wine. So we kind of think that it's this, but it's not, you know, it's not like diacetyl, like it's more mm -hmm. like H2S and that they know that it's there. They have a pretty good idea of how it forms, but they're still not completely positive. So Damascenone is one of those that's a little squishy in terms of how exactly it happens, but it's formed from the breakdown of hop-derived glycoside precursors. And the, that hydrolysis of hop glycosides occurs during boiling and fermentation. And then that flavor intensity will increase as the beer ages. So again, that's an intensity increase. Uh, it's not necessarily the amount. It's just that as everything else is changing, um, then it's going to become, or I guess the damascenone will form, but the, the perceived intensity is going to change as the beer gets older. And that's particularly going to happen in beers that are really highly hopped, which makes sense. You know, if you've got like, that's, it's just a proportional thing. So if you have a double IPA with a whole bunch of hops added to it, you're going to have a higher level of damascenone than you would say in your wit beer. So with damascenone, those flavors, like we kind of talked about, that's going to be like black tea, dry tobacco, you said cranberry, red wine mm -hmm. is one. Um, it's green things turning black is the way that I learned it. I think we actually, I think we were both in that same course um, where we learned about that and it's, like that definitely tracks when you smell it. Like I said, it does smell yeah. like tobacco to me. Um, sometimes it can have kind of a grape flavor. I mean, it's damascenone. It is a it is associated with grapes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and then that amount that's formed is going to be directly proportional to how how much hops you use. 
So then with our yeast, the first one we're going to talk about is autolysis. And when we talk about autolysis, just like we've been saying, if your beer is autolyzed, it's not going to be one flavor or one indication. It's There's going to be a lot of things wrong with that beer that's going to tell you that you have um, a, a autolyzed yeast in it. Uh, but this can also happen with yeast that's been stored too long or too warm in between pitches. Uh, so you can, you know, you can have a high level of autolyzed yeast cells in your pitch if you're not practicing what Charlie Bamforth refers to as good yeast husbandry, which I fucking love that. It's like you're part of the Future Farmers of America and <laughs> you're at like the state fair showing off your yeast husbandry skills. <laughs> Uh, but autolysis can also happen if you're leaving yeast overly long in the cone of your cylinder conical vessel, your CCV, after flocculation is finished, uh, because you have that hydrostatic pressure pushing down on your yeast. So that's going to increase your rates of autolysis. And that's going to be like if you leave, if you leave beer in your tank for six months instead of six weeks, right? So it's not like oh, we couldn't transfer the beer this week. We're transferring it next week. Like it's, you're, you're not going yeah. to get autolysis from that. But if it's like, oh, we were supposed to transfer this beer three months ago. Yeah. Then you, yeah, then, yeah. Then you might, might have autolysis. <laughs> and so with the autolysis, the kinds of flavors you would get, again, like Marmite is called like yeast bite. And that's, it, it's also kind of familiar as uh, like barbecue potato chips use autolyzed yeast to get kind of that umami flavor. So you get like soy sauce, umami, rubber bands. It's just kind of, it can show up as a, a bunch of different ways as just like an old beer. And that just means that your yeast, you've got yeast death and that can happen in bottle conditioned beers, especially where you're actually adding yeast to it. And then we've got Mercaptan. And this Mercaptan is found in all beer styles to a degree, uh, but it is a yeast autolysis flavor. And I think, and I mean, Rachel, you tell me, I don't think that you would always, I don't know that you would encounter Mercaptan just by itself. Since it's an, an autolysis product, I think it's, it's like we've been talking about. Like, I feel like the one time I did encounter Mercaptan by itself was... Somebody here in Charlotte had some sort of propane leak. It was very, very large. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the whole city smelled like soup. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. But So I feel like, yes, you're correct. Like, unless, I mean, that's almost everything. Right. Out in the wild. You know, right, exactly. like, unless you're doing like a spiked situation. Right. Right. So if you're doing like flavor training, yes, and you'll encounter Mercaptan just on its own, but it is an autolysis product. So there's going to be a lot of other flavors there, especially like acetahelahide, because you're also talking about like yeast death. It's probably not mm -hmm. cleaning everything up. Um, right. Probably right. getting some of those acetahelahide dihacetyl things that are naturally formed in fermentation, not being finished. Right. And you, this, can be the same way with other autolysis products in, you know, bottle conditioned beer where you've got yeast contained in there that's going to gradually die. Um, but it can also be in younger beers if the yeast has been subjected to excessive stress and has undergone cell death. Uh, so with Mercaptan, this one is going to be like drains, rotting garbage. 
I think it smells like brie. Me too. Brie was the example that I gave to people, which for me, that doesn't change the way I feel about brie, but I did profusely apologize to people in the session. Like if you, if I'm sorry, if I have ruined brie for you now, <laughs> by you just associating it with Mercaptan. But it's also an example of like that context and compound specific, right? If I'm having brie cheese, I expect that Mercaptan smell. If I'm drinking a beer, I don't. Um, but this can also be contributed by dry hopping or spoilage bacteria. But again, we're talking about aged flavors in beer. So if it's an aged flavor, it's going to be, there's going to be other things that accompany it that's going to tell you what those flavors are. So those are kind of our main flavors. And uh, like when I was getting ready for the session, I was like, uh -huh, should I include something about water? It's like I've had old water, you know, before, but then I thought, no, because like in a brewery, you're moving through your water pretty quickly. And if your beer is old mm. enough that the water has aged yeah. flavors, there's going to be a lot of other things that are going to tell you that that beer is old before your water will. Yeah. It's almost like you won't, I don't know if you could even get detected. Yeah, exactly. So many other things would present itself. It would mask whatever water age right. component it was. Right. The more exactly. likely to taste things from your water that aren't filtered out like chlorine. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So those are some of our flavors that we can get from aged beer and kind of how to evaluate them. But yeah, there's, you know, the way that beer ages is something that is like with everything, you know, craft is kind of changing that and like where the research is going because you we're not necessarily creating beers like pilots not creating beers that are need to be shelf stable to ship to france mm -hmm. or something right thank you rachel for letting me do this which of course we love when either one or both of us does presentations because then like we've already got we're like oh uh, great we have an episode, episode. yeah <laughs> we have an episode that like one or the other of us has already done all the work so the other one kind of yeah. gets a little bit of a break and just gets to be like the audience the live studio audience thank you everyone for listening to this episode of false bottom girls you can find us on social media at false bottom girls you can email us falsebottomgirls at gmail.com and you can visit our website falsebottomgirls.com we also have a patreon thank you to our new patreon followers our okay. followers get um in theory monthly bonus episodes on style deep dives we're catching up we've got a little bit of a backlog but we're almost there uh but you will have all of the monthly episodes soon yes. and then we'll be back on track but listen yeah. we're just we're just here doing the best we can this has been false bottom girls and we make the brewing world go round